Many people ask, what is life all about? Is there any meaning to it? Is there, you can get rid of that now, guys. Put the other thing on, thanks. Um, that is not my text for this morning. Um, is there any meaning to it? Is there any grand scheme or significance to us being on planet Earth? And of course, the answer to those questions are absolutely yes. Of course, there is meaning and significance to our lives, and that meaning and significance is found in our relationship with our Creator God, Lord Jesus Christ, who has called us to be people of purpose in His world. And our Sunday teaching series, People of Purpose, is very loosely based on a statement from American pastor and best-selling author Rick Warren from his book, um, The Purpose Driven Church. And uh, we've just been working through this uh, for the last uh, few weeks. To bring people to Jesus and membership in his family, to develop them into Christ-like maturity, equip them for ministry in his church and life mission in the world in order to magnify God's name. And I think that's a great sentence which really embraces our purposes as Christians in God's world. And as you can see, there are five words, all beginning with the the letter M, which speak of God's purposes for our lives as Christians. Three weeks ago, I spoke on the the first in the series, and that was to magnify God's name. In other words, our greatest calling and purpose in our lives is linked with knowing and loving God, to be worshippers. And uh, we discovered on that occasion that there are many misconceptions about worship. Firstly, worship is not synonymous with music or singing, as some believe. It might involve both singing and music, but equally it might involve neither. Worship is not about us, was the second misconception or aimed at us feeling good, or us being lifted um, up, or us being inspired. Worship is not about us, it's about God. And it's really important for us to understand that. It's not essentially about preferences, or styles, or likes, or dislikes. And thirdly, uh, worship is not limited to a Sunday, or the confines of a church building. Worship is something that we do, or should at least do, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. And I I love what the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And he says, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. I, I, I really, that speaks to me, and it speaks to us, I'm sure. You know, eating and drinking are just normal, everyday things that we all do. The mundane aspects of life, if you like. And what Paul is saying there, that even in the ordinary and the mundane things that we do daily, that those can be acts of worship, that in everything, not just when we come into church on a Sunday morning and sing songs of praise to God, but in everything that we are, everything that we do uh, throughout the rest of the week, needs to be done with God in the picture. Two weeks ago, Dan showed us that our purpose in this world is worked through by us being members of his family on earth, his body, his bride, his church. And as Christians, we've not only been called to be uh, called into a relationship with God, 
but we've been called also into a relationship with one another. And the Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation of others, but in a deep commitment to each other. Last week, Dan continued the, the teaching, and it taught us that God's desire for us, his children, is that we should become mature. Now, anyone who's a parent here will have that desire for your own children, that they will grow up, that they will become mature adults, fully rounded, have their feet firmly planted on the floor, that they will grow in wisdom and uh, make wise decisions in their lives. In other words, God's desire for us is that we should not remain as we were the moment we became Christians, spiritual babes in Christ, that we should grow up in the faith, that we should become mature, that we should become wise. And uh, as we said on a number of occasions, the mature believer is not necessarily someone with lots and lots and lots of Bible knowledge, but the mature believer is one who has grown to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that Christ-likeness. Which really brings us on to this week's subject, and that is God has given us a mission in his world. There's a work which he has called us to do. And that mission isn't just an activity for those who are extrovert. It isn't just for those who are evangelists or for the mature believer, but it's a responsibility and a privilege for every believer. Jesus, in his prayer to his father, in John chapter 17, often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, uh, says this. And this is from the message. In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I gave them, I give them a mission in the world. I think that's a brilliant verse. That God is at work in our world and he desires us to be in partnership with him. Our English word mission comes from the Latin word missio, which means to send. And I suppose we could say that God was the very first missionary because he sent his one and only son into the world. And Jesus said, John 20, 21, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So in other words, he is saying, my mission is to be your mission. I could spend all morning actually just on this, this, this one subject and giving you verse after verse. But Jesus most certainly understood his mission on earth. We see him at the age of 12, where his mother eventually caught up with him when he was uh, in the temple, sitting at the feet um, uh, of rabbis and scholars and debating with them. And his mother asked him where he had been. And his response was a wonderful response. He said, I must be about my father's business. And then 21 years later, when Jesus was on the cross, he said this. He said, I, uh, it, it, he said, I, it is finished. And those two st statements are just like bookends. And they speak about Jesus' consciousness of his mission on earth. That there was that awareness of what he had come to do and what he was on earth for. On other occasions, he said such things as, uh, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost in Luke 19, verse 10. And also in John chapter 3, verse 17. We all know John 3, 16, don't we? But John 3, 17 is equally a powerful verse where Jesus said, God sent his Son into the world, not to judge the world, 
but to save the world through him. Another verse where he was speaking to that woman from Samaria at the well and then afterwards he spoke to his disciples and he told them that his food or his nourishment comes from doing the will of his father, doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. I think that's quite an interesting thing to say, that last verse there. That Jesus got spiritual food, he got nourishment actually from doing the will of Father God, from fulfilling his mission on planet Earth. And I'm sure that uh, many of you can agree with that, that you too are spiritually fed and nourished as you are seeking to be obedient to the Lord and to do his work in this world. The Apostle Paul was very much like Jesus in being very conscious of his divine mission. Um, Paul tells the elders from the, uh, the church at Ephesus, Acts 20, verse 24, that my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. What was that work? Well, he continues by saying, the work of telling others the good news about the grace of God. So Christ's mission is our mission. And Jesus calls us not only just to come to him, but also to go for him. And the mission of Christ, we find in the first five uh, books of the New Testament, in the closing chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and also in Acts. Let me just very quickly just put these verses up before you. I'm sure you know all of these verses and, and can quote them freely anyway, but let's do that this morning. In Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, Jesus said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey my commands, the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark 16:15, And he told them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Now, those words found in Matthew and Mark's, Mark's Gospel are often referred to as the, the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion, okay? That's very, very important. In Luke chapter 24, again in the final chapter of uh, Luke's Gospel, it was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. What was the message? Well, look at the ver- words that follow that. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. And similarly in John's Gospel, although it's not in the last chapter, but in the penultimate chapter. Again he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. When we come to the the history of the early church, which is the book of Acts, the history of the first 30 years of the church, uh, the very last words of Jesus to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As I say, these were the very last words that Jesus uttered to his disciples before he ascended into... No, it's meant to do that. It's okay. Before he ascended into heaven. Now, if this morning was my very last opportunity to speak to you, maybe I was... Going elsewhere from this church, stop smiling. But I was leaving you this morning. I'm sure that I would not preach and teach on stuff that was of secondary importance. 
What I would leave for this morning is that which I regarded as the most important uh, uh, thing to teach upon. And Jesus here is just about to leave his disciples after three years. His last words to them before he ascended into heaven were, he spoke to them about being his witnesses, that they should be filled with the Holy Spirit, that they should go out and tell people about him throughout the Roman Empire. And these disciples were given not some new ideology, they weren't given some self-help techniques, they weren't given some self-improvement course, they weren't asked to go into the nations and take some, uh, a mix of religious sayings, but rather they were to declare and proclaim a person. And that person was the Lord Jesus. Sometimes I think that we overcomplicate uh, what is known as evangelism or mission. It's all about Jesus. It's all about declaring him. Now, so far, we've not learned anything new, have we? This is old hat. It isn't new teaching. And I guess, as I was thinking about this yesterday, that probably on the subject of uh, sharing our faith, I have spoken to this congregation, I guess, 50 plus times over a period of 23 years. And I was wondering, what new can I say? Do I need to say anything new? Nevertheless, I believe that we must continue to challenge ourselves with this teaching. I once read a story about a great reformed preacher by the name of George Whitfield. He was around in the 18th century and he was a friend um, and a colleague of John Wesley, another great evangelist who started the, the Methodist Church. And George Whitfield was asked to go to preach in a church on three consecutive nights. And on the first night, his, his text was taken from John chapter 3. And it was, you must be born again. On the second night in this church, he preached for also from John chapter 3. His text was, you must be born again. And the secretary of the church seemed to be rather worried about this. And uh, he came to him following the second evening and asked him two questions. He said, firstly, my first question is, why have you preached on that subject, on that text, two nights running. And thirdly, and, and secondly, what are you going to speak on the third evening? And Whitfield said to him that he spoke on the subject of, on the second occasion, you must be born again, because they didn't respond on the first occasion, what he had said on night one. And his text for the following night was that he would be speaking exactly on the same subject because they had not responded on night two. And I feel a little bit like George Whitfield in bringing a message about finding our purpose in life through being obedient to the mission that God has given us to take his message into the world. And I feel a little bit like that, not so much because you have rejected or ignored things that I've said in the past, but because there is still so much more work to do for that reason. This week I was speaking to another church leader and we were talking about the state of Christianity within Tamworth. And we said that within Tamworth this morning there's over 80,000 people in this town and yet there will be less than 800 people in churches collectively throughout the town. Less than 1% of people who are attending a place of worship. There is much work to do 
And as Jesus said, look, the fields are white to harvest. But the question that I've been asking myself this week is why are Christian people, why are we sometimes so reticent to share the good news of Jesus Christ? In our day, there is better training than there has ever been for those who want to share their faith. There are more resources than there has ever been, probably than any other time in history. But the answer is, I believe, because many people have lost heart, lost heart for outreach. And if we've lost heart, all the conferences like Dan was talking to us earlier on about, and all the courses and all the schemes and all the strategies, all the mission and all the mission statements are quite useless because it's out of the fullness of our hearts that our mouths will speak. And if our hearts are full of Jesus, if they are full of his love, if they are full of gratitude for all the things that he has done in our lives, if they are full of joy, if they are full of light, then guess what's going to come out? It will just naturally spill out of our mouths to others. Actually try stopping us. Now all this last week my heart has been full. There was a rugby game last weekend. (laughs) And my heart has been full of this all week. You know, ask those who have been around me. You know, it was probably the most important rugby game between the nations of Wales and England ever in the history of the game. Did you know who won that game, by the way? (laughs) It was... And I just wanted to talk about this amazing subject (laughs) to absolutely everybody I met. And sometimes, you know, it it just came into conversations. You know, great weather. Yeah, it's lovely to see such blue sky and warm weather this time of the year we're having an Indian summer yeah that's good do you know about the rugby (laughs) you know and I I sort of always brought it in subtly (laughs) joking aside joking aside compared to the message of Jesus even Wales beating England in the most important game ever pales into insignificance. You know, it doesn't even register on the scale. But let's face it, you know, we all face many discouragements and disappointments which can cause us to lose heart. You know, firstly, I was thinking about this. We are living in an increasingly secular country. And at best, you know, the people around us are, have a passive disinterest in the Christian faith. Uh, or indifference and we live in a society where Christians are becoming more and more and more marginalised and our Christian voice is being lost amidst many other voices in society and the secular worldview is one that seems to prevail and when Christians speak out on a number of issues they're often at best viewed as out of touch and need a good dose of reality but at worst We are seen as bigoted and um, prejudiced and narrow-minded fundamentalists. And therefore, some believe it's easier not to say anything at all, rather than to open ourselves to the verbal abuse of others. And I can understand that. It's hard. You see, tolerance is a big thing today. And, you know, in, in a society, it calls out for tolerance of views of other people. Live and let live, we hear. But it appears 
that the only people whose views are not tolerated, you may disagree with me on this, that's what it appears to me, the only people whose views are not tolerated in a free society with free speech are Christians. I don't know if you picked that up. You know, to be thought of being a God-botherer or a Bible-basher or a member of the God-squad has actually caused some Christians to shy away from the great commission of sharing their faith. Commanded. Commanded by Jesus. Another big disincentive is the fear of failure. And it may be that some of you in the past, you have wanted to share what is in your heart, the faith that you have in Jesus with others, and you got your fingers burned. It went a little bit belly up on you. And, you know, the people didn't respect you for what you had to say, and it caused some friction or whatever. And I think that we've all had those occasions when we've blown it. We had good intentions. We wanted to be obedient to Jesus. But despite our best efforts, despite all of the prayers that we prayed, we sometimes spectacularly fail. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I guess that's probably many of us. Many of you remember the, um, the so-called decade of evangelism in the Church of England, particularly. And there was this uh, renewed emphasis on making Christ known far and wide to the world. And this decade of evangelism was called between 1990 and the year 2000. And some people in the church even believed that the church could double in number in this decade of evangelism. The church actually declined by 17% during that decade, which was double the decline of the previous 10 years. Now, I'm not having a go at Anglicans. That was a spectacular failure. But thankfully, and this is what I'm getting to, thankfully they didn't give up. And out of the Anglican church we have Alpha, which was seeded during that decade of evangelism. In 2015, Alpha is running in 169 countries. It's been translated into 112 languages. 27 million people have been on the Alpha course, with many millions coming to faith. Then there was the sole survivor, again birthed in that decade of evangelism. This year, 25,000 young people went along with 1,000 coming to faith. In addition to that, there were another 5,000 going to momentum for 20s and 30s. The Anglican Church has also been heavily involved in fresh expressions of church, with over 1,000 new congregations planted you know, the kind of churches that people wouldn't, which are for those who wouldn't generally attend a traditional Sunday morning church service. And I suppose my message is this, and the reason I'm telling you all of that is don't let past failures dampen your enthusiasm for telling others about Jesus. That's the point. We've all got past failures, we've all messed it up, we've all got it wrong. Don't let those past failures dampen your enthusiasm now. I've made some spectacular failures of my own. Let me tell you about one of them. When I was a very new Christian, and I was very raw, um, I remember a horrible moment. As I look back, it still causes me embarrassment. I feel a little bit hot under the collar when I think about this. 
It's going back to the late 70s. I was studying at uh, Cardiff University. And all the students in my class and I were asked to deliver a talk on any subject we chose. But they wanted to film us and then play back that to the rest of the class where we then had a critical assessment on each other. And really in those days, this was cutting edge stuff because, you know, we've got all the technology in the world today. But in those days, they had nothing. And this was really new stuff. I decided to speak on the second coming of Jesus. The class, the lecturers, they were sitting ducks. They had to listen to me for ten uninterrupted minutes. I thought I was going to be the next Billy Graham. I managed mass, I, I imagined mass conversions, students kneeling at the front giving their lives to Jesus. And I suppose my approach at the time was, you know, sort of uh, get them smelling the sulfur as I dangle them over the pits of hell. Maybe they'll be under such conviction they won't be able to resist. And after all, I got all my, good, all my material from a good source. Uh, so I thought at the time, an American fundamentalist book. And if you think, I can't remember the title, but think again. Think of Left Behind series. And, you know, rather cuckoo theology. And don't forget, I was a brand new Christian. I delivered my talk to the class and the lecturers. I wish I hadn't. I was so embarrassed. No one was convicted of their sin. No one was converted. There were no tears of repentance. Lots of, tears, lots of other tears, tears of laughter. In fact, I remember, as if it were yesterday, my lecturer taking his specs off and actually wiping his eyes because he was laughing so hard. And probably, it's good counselling for me just to share this with you. It's doing me some good here. That was probably the most embarrassing thing I have ever done in my 56 years on planet Earth. The lecturer needed to stop me because there was such uproar and such laughter. I was shamed. I was belittled. It wasn't the student's fault. It wasn't the lecturer's fault. It certainly wasn't God's fault. It was my own stupidity. And also I didn't have anyone to mentor me in my faith in those days because I was a young, zealous, rather cringy fundamentalist, lacking in wisdom and lacking in Bible knowledge. There we go, I feel better. <laughs> if you've got a story of uh, great evangelistic failure, better than that one, please tell me, because I want to laugh and maybe we can write a book together or something like that. <laughs> Yesterday, I, I, I actually run my specs. I um, picked up this story from uh, Nicky Gumbel's book, the Alpha Book on Questions of Life, and uh, it did make me, make me smile a little bit. Let me see if I can find it for you. Forgive me reading, but uh, this is what he writes. But how do we go about telling others? It seems to me that there are two opposite dangers. First, there's the danger of insensitivity. When I first became a Christian, I fell into this. I was so excited about what had happened that I longed for everyone else to follow suit. Yes, we, can, we know what that means. After I had been a Christian for a few days, I went to a party Determined to tell everyone, I saw a friend dancing and decided the first step was to make her realize her need. So I went up to her and said, 
you look awful. You really need Jesus. She thought that I'd gone mad. It was not the most effective way of telling someone the good news. However, she did later become a Christian quite independently of me, and she's now my wife. The next party I went to, I decided to go well-equipped, so I got hold of a number of booklets, Christian books on various issues and the New Testament. I stuffed them into every pocket I could find. I asked the girl to dance. It was hard going with so many books in my pocket. So I asked if we could sit down. I soon brought the subject round to Christianity. For every question she asked, I was able to produce a book from my pocket on exactly the subject. Eventually, she went away with an armful of books. The next day, she was going to France and was reading one of the books I had given her on the boat. Suddenly, she understood the truth of what Jesus had done for her. And turning to her neighbor, she said, I have just become a Christian. She died in a riding accident at the age of 21. It was wonderful that she had come to Christ before she died, even though I don't think I went about it in quite the right way you see on a positive note there I thank God that uh, Nicky wasn't defeated by his early blunders that he continued he persevered and otherwise we wouldn't have had the Alpha course we wouldn't have seen the great revival of people coming to faith through that course throughout the world I wasn't defeated either I was certainly crushed and, you know, I, I, I share that story with you this morning. And it was virtually as I told that story. It was the most embarrassing, awful moment of my life. I was totally crushed by that for quite a while afterwards. But I didn't allow that crushing to destroy, or, or, or for me to be destroyed by that experience. And I thank God that God has used me in leading scores of people, mainly one-to-one, to faith over the years, including some of you. And I thank God that that is the greatest privilege that can be afforded to us to introduce someone to Jesus. Someone once wrote, when I enter that beautiful city and the saints all around me appear, I hope that someone will tell me it was you who invited me here. And that would be an incredible thrill, wouldn't it? On that day when we see Jesus face to face, that we will be welcomed into heaven by those that we have been responsible for bringing into the Christian faith, into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not only directly, but perhaps indirectly by the way that we use our money. For example, I know that many of you support works, even the works that we've been hearing about this morning with open doors. Others support works in India and Africa. You know, just to think that our giving has enabled someone else to take the message of Jesus Christ to those who don't hear. Imagine just being coming into, welcomed into heaven. Welcome, brother, sister. You don't know me, but your giving has enabled me to come to Christ. You see, I was fed, I was educated by those missionaries that you supported. And they told me about our Lord. Thank you. Wow. Wow. That would be so wonderful. But the opposite might also be true. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Maybe on Judgment Day, we hear the words of that neighbor, that work colleague, that son, that daughter, 
that parent, that sibling? Why didn't you tell me about Jesus? Why didn't you tell me about Jesus? Why did you keep on talking about church? Why didn't you tell me about Jesus? Maybe that's why Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. I don't know about you. I'm sure I do know about you, actually. For those who led us to faith, aren't they very special in our thinking? Aren't we so grateful to them for ever telling us about Jesus? You know, for me to come to know him and experience his love has been the most wonderful, life-transforming thing that has ever happened to me. 38 years and continuing, I have no regrets. That he has brought me that joy, that inner contentment, that sense of security, that purposeful living. He has saved me from myself, as well as for himself. You see, if we were in the Sahara Desert and we come across an oasis, we would be extremely selfish not to tell people around us who are thirsty, where their thirst could be satisfied. And Jesus is the one that brings his water of life to those who are spiritually thirsty in this world. And it's only through Jesus can thirsty hearts of men and women be satisfied. And I know that I've said this probably more than once. Our mission as a church is not just about being nice or charitable or lending people a helping hand in life. It's great that we can do that. It's great that we reach out to others with the compassion of Christ But our focus and desire is for life transformation. And I make no apology for saying that, that the greatest need of an individual is not physical. It's great to meet people with their physical needs, but the greatest need is a spiritual need, their need of a saviour. And I know I've said this as well on other occasions, that you can give an alcoholic who wastes his money on drink, you can give him food to keep him and his family well fed, You can give him friendship and emotional support. You can direct that person to having the right state benefits. But when you give a man Christ, you potentially give him all of those things. And you give a wife back a husband. And you give children back a father. And he becomes a good neighbor. And he becomes a faithful employee. And there is security and hope for the future. Just yesterday I read a book I've had on my shelf. I've dipped into it over the years. It's a book written in 1976 by an Anglican clergyman, a a wonderful, wonderful man. I heard him once speak, um, David Watson. And this is what uh, David says. He says, today, that's in 1976, today in many circles, the question is not so much that of calling the prodigal home as trying to make him comfortable in his pigsty whilst he remains still far away from home and cut off from the only person who, loves, who really loves and cares. I found that an incredibly hard-hitting quote. You see, despite all the great work that our church does in its community, our work is not complete until we have brought Jesus to people and until people are brought to Jesus. 
That's when our work is complete. You see, our mission statement as a church is reaching Tamworth with the life-transforming love of Christ. And that's our heartbeat. That's our desire. It's wonderful. And we are privileged to reach people at all kinds of different levels within society. It's wonderful to do. But we need to tell them about Jesus. I'm going to finish with a story. A story written by Rick Warren in this book, another book uh, written by him, The Purpose Driven Life. And it's about his father. And this is what he writes. He says, My father was a minister for over 50 years, serving mostly in small rural churches. He was a simple preacher, but he was a man with a mission. His favorite activity was taking teams of volunteers overseas to build church buildings for small congregations. In his lifetime, Dad built over 150 churches around the world. In 1999, my father died of cancer. In the final week of his life, the disease kept him awake 24 hours a day. As he dreamed, he talked out loud about what he was dreaming. Sitting by his bedside, I learned a lot about my dad, By just listening to his dreams, he relived one church building project after another. One night near the end, while my wife, my niece and I were by his side, Dad suddenly became very active and tried to get out of bed. Of course, he was too weak, and my wife insisted he lay back down. But he persisted in trying to get out of bed, so my wife finally asked, Jimmy, what are you trying to do? He replied, got to save one more for Jesus, got to save one more for Jesus, got to save one more for Jesus. And he began to repeat that phrase over and over. During the next hour, he said that phrase probably a hundred times, got to save one more for Jesus. And as I sat by his bed with tears flowing down my cheeks, I bowed my head to thank God for my dad's faith. At that moment, Dad reached out and placed his frail hand on my head and said, as if he were commissioning me, save one more for Jesus. Save one more for Jesus. And then Rick continued by saying that we will not be in heaven two seconds before we cry out, why did I place so much importance on things that were temporary? Our life's work, our careers, our homes, our hobbies, our technical gadgetry, our fancy buildings. And they will not matter one iota when we come to our journey's end. The thing that will matter most is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And the way that we have helped his lost children get to know him and get to heaven. Nothing matters more. And the cross, as Jesus died upon that cross, it is finished, proves that very thing that I'm saying. One more for Jesus.